turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I was in Chattanooga this week at the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference. I taught on justification from the book of Galatians, and the uh, audio and video is now on YouTube, on Facebook, on my blog. You can get a link to it, or just go to our YouTube page, which you can actually get to right from the homepage of our website. And I enjoyed my week thoroughly after the event last March. Uh, This was my first trip. My first time to another city and a hotel room, and I was honestly a little nervous about it. But it all went very well, and I even played drums all week, which uh, I wasn't sure I could do. And uh, the first day after I played a couple songs, I got all emotional because uh, I could do it. I couldn't do it particularly fancy. I played very basic, but by Thursday, uh, it all came very naturally to me again. So thank God for muscle memory. That worked out well. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is continuing the exact same argument. In fact, he's going to carry this argument all the way till chapter 4, really. And the argument essentially is this. The argument is that the world, though it feels like it's very wise, the world, though it assumes itself to be very intelligent, the world, though it assumes that it has great capacity to explain deep and complicated things, the world, by its wisdom, simply cannot know God. And Paul is going to return to that this morning And say, again, that without the Spirit of God, if you don't have the Spirit of God inside you, then you simply cannot discern spiritual things. And so the world that does not have the Holy Spirit, we know this because Jesus himself said that not everyone was going to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in those people that God is determined to save, that God has decided since before the foundation of the world that he is going to save. And he puts his spirit inside those people so that they can understand and recognize the truth of God when they hear it. At some point in every one of your lives, At some point, the word of God came alive. I know that in my own experience, there were certainly plenty of years that I could not make hide nor hair out of this book. I could read it. I could understand the words. The words were in English. The order of the words kind of made sense. But as far as really understanding what it was about, I simply didn't. And then one day, by the grace of God, suddenly the book came alive to me, and suddenly I could understand what it was telling me. And that's the experience that we've all had, because until you have the Spirit of God deposited in you, there is no way that you can understand the things of God. And that's exactly the point of verse 10. So look at verse 10 here. For to us, Paul is writing to Christians, And he says, for to us, God revealed these truths, these mysteries. He revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man that is in him? What that's talking about, what Paul is saying is, When you break it right down, you have no idea what's going on inside anybody else. And the only reason they know it is because the spirit of that person individually understands what's going on in that person. I look at Dwight sometimes and I think, you know, as an outsider, as somebody who's not living through the experiences he's living through, I can be sympathetic or empathetic. I can say, that looks hard. 
that looks difficult to go through. But what kind of mindset he has to have to get through every day, I have no idea. But he knows. He knows all about it. He knows it intimately because he's living it. Same thing with anybody else. Same thing with Micah. Same thing with Tom. I know them externally. I know them via our relationship. But in terms of what really goes on in their heart and mind, I don't know. I only know what goes on in my life. And so Paul is saying that only the spirit of a man inside the man knows what's really going on inside that man. Then he carries that out to God himself and says, even so, in other words, likewise, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Same idea. Even if you could see God, even if you could see the, the attributes of God played out in human history, even if you could look as an outsider at the actions of God, you still just don't know God. The same way that I don't know Thaddeus, or I don't know Micah, or I don't know what any individual is going through. I don't know what God is going through, but... The same way that the spirit of a man knows what's going on in the man, the spirit of God knows what's going on with God. And so when God himself gives you the Holy Spirit of God, you now have an instructor to tell you about God who resides inside you. And you are able to understand the things of God that the world that does not have the Spirit of God simply cannot understand. And so things that are plain to you, things that are clear and obvious to you, when you say God is sovereign, God's in charge, the world is playing out the way God intends. God made his choice before the foundation of the world. He didn't just make the world in a willy-nilly fashion. He created the world with intention, with purpose. He knew the end from the beginning, and he's acting on the world in order to make sure that his intention finally comes to pass here in this world. Actually, I shouldn't have used the word finally. That his intention comes to pass in every cell and corpuscle and iota of this world. The will of God is coming to pass. And you say that very thing, which is very biblical and makes sense to all of us. You say that very thing to other people and they will say, no, it can't be like that. Because they don't understand. And say, no, that can't be the way God works. He has to be fair. He has to give everybody a chance. Your God's a monster. I don't like the way you think. Calvinists eat babies. I don't agree with you about anything that you've just said about God. They'll be so argumentative and so hateful to these things that are clearly spelled out in the Bible. And importantly, these things that make sense to us just don't make any sense to the world. In fact, Paul's about to say they are foolishness to the world. But to us, it's the wisdom of God. Look, I wouldn't have known anything about God's intention before the foundation of the world. In fact, I don't know anything before my birth. I don't know anything pre-60 years ago. I like history, but as far as experientially, I, I don't know anything going on in the world before I got here. And I only know about the world since I got here by my experiences with the world. But as far as God's intention, God's plan before the foundation of the world, his right and his power to elect particular people, I would not know any of that had the Spirit of God not revealed that. Had the spirit of God who knows God not told me about that. The only reason I know any of that is because God instructed me about that via his spirit. And that's the exact same way with every one of you. You'd be blind and ignorant and deaf and, and happy in your sin for the rest of your life. Had God not interrupted you at some point during your life. 
taken control of you, put his spirit in you, and began the process of teaching you what he's about. And thank God that's what he's in the enterprise of doing. And so Paul says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received, and then parenthetically, not the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. How do I know these things that are freely given to us by God? How do I know that God freely gives faith to all those that he has chosen? How do I know that the grace of God is going to cover me when I stand before him? How do I know that God has freely justified me in the finished work of Christ? How do I know that his redemptive work fully perfected me for all of eternity so that when the time of my judgment comes, God is going to see Christ in my stead rather than my sin, my debauchery, my failures? How do I know that there's a heaven up there and that when I die, I'm going to be welcomed into it? How do I know that someday this planet is going to be established with new Jerusalem and that Christ himself is going to be on the earth and that there's going to be a time of inexpressible joy where God says he's going to wipe away every tear, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more death? How do I know these things? These things are all said in the Bible, but I didn't understand the Bible. How do I know them now? Because the spirit that belongs to God has been given to me and then taught me all these things that God freely gives us. You understand what Paul is getting at? Again, he's just making the point that without the spirit of God, you cannot understand these things. Again, try it. Try it. Just tell your unsaved friends. Talk to them about the things of God and the intention of God and the finished work of Christ and foreordination and predestination and God determining since before the foundation of the world exactly who would end up in his presence at the end of all time. They're going to stare at you like you're directly from the twilight zone. They're going to look at you like, where did you get that stuff? And you're going to say, well, from the Bible. And they're going to say, well, that's a 2,000-year-old book. And it's been through so many hands. But they don't know it's even older than that. It is much older than that. But they think, you know, A.D., how many years since Christ. And so they figure, well, he was born about 2,000 years ago. I had lunch this week on Friday before I started the drive home, I had lunch with a friend of mine who lives in Chattanooga. We used to work together, and we were very close as far as a work relationship. She, all of her life, was an agnostic. As long as I ever knew her, she was agnostic. She and her husband both. And this time, sitting at the table in Cracker Barrel, directly across the street from my hotel, this time she told me that she has begun going to church because she's a couple of years older than I am and she's beginning to think about her own mortality. And so she's attending church. And she told me that she's in a ladies' Bible study, which I thought was very good, except that the lady who's teaching her apparently isn't teaching her particularly well because she said to me, well, you know, everything that's in the Bible, and I'm no expert on the Bible, she said, but everything that's in the Bible is subject to interpretation. And I hear that so often. You know, the Bible, it's so hard to understand. And because it's so hard to understand, it's really just open to interpretation. And how do you know whose interpretation is correct? So that 
sort of cynicism that she had in her agnostic days is still alive and well. And she also said, this was her summary of the Bible, she said, well, you know, those parables. And I said, do you think the Bible's just parables? Because the Bible says a lot declaratively. There's a lot of theology in there that's just plainly, clearly laid out and said with words that don't require interpretation. They're didactic statements. The Bible is very pedagogical. The Bible just lays it out in front of you and says, this is what Christians believe. And when I said that to her, she said, I've never had anyone say that to me. I've always been told that these things are open to interpretation. But the Bible is not open to interpretation. It says what it means, and it means what it says. And if you take it at face value, it's not confusing. Yes, there are some symbols. Yes, there are some parables. But the vast majority of the Bible is plain on its face, and it says what it says. But when you tell your friends, oh, God has decided what he's going to do since before he made the world. When you say things like God has foreordained and predestined the end from the beginning. Oh, God has chosen a particular people. They're referred to as the elect, as the chosen, as the eclectos. And that's the way that God is saving particular people. When Jesus died, he did not die for everybody. He died for those people that God decided to save since before the foundation of the world, that God gave particular people to his son, and his son came to redeem those people. Those people, as a consequence, received the Holy Spirit, and that's why they can understand the things of God. What is the most common thing that people will say to you after you say all that? That's your assumption, that's your opinion, that's how you read it. Because, you know, the Bible's open to interpretation. And that's how you read it. I don't read it that way. In fact, I don't think that. And, of course, the people who say, well, I don't agree with that, I don't think that, usually haven't spent two good hours in the Bible. But they have an opinion about what God would be like. And usually... Their version of what God would be like looks an awful lot like themselves. My God is very much like me because I'm good and I like me and I'm fair and so that's what my God is like. So Paul is arguing here that the world is not only ignorant of what's in the Bible, but indeed they can't get it. They can't understand it. Their foolishness is built in. When they hear the things of God, when they hear the word of God, of course they're going to disagree with it because the thoughts of God are so much higher than the thoughts of human beings, so much better than the thoughts of human beings, so much more eternal than the thoughts of human beings that there's no way that mortal human beings, time-bound creatures, can possibly understand the things of God unless God himself, by his spirit, teaches you those things. And that's Paul's argument. Now, I don't care how exclusive that sounds. I don't care how particular that sounds. It's what the Bible says, and in the midst of saving people, I'm just grateful he saved me. I mean, I like you, (laughs) and I hope to see you around the throne, but I'm real glad he saved me. So Paul says, verse 12, now we have received Not the spirit of the world. By the way, that implies that there is a spirit of the world. One of the names that Satan is called is the prince of the power of the air. Paul writes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and the darkness of this world, cosmokratos, and we, we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. But that word, that cosmokratos word, has to do with the darkness and the wickedness of this world. So there is a spirit to this world. There is a satanic overview of this world. 
I mean, come on. We're down to Trump or Hillary. I mean, come on. Uh, is that really the best and brightest? Is that the best we could come up with? I think it's because the best and the brightest realize they don't want the job. And so uh, this world and all its machinations this past week, and we prayed about it in the back, this week ISIS went into a church. Yes, a Catholic church, but there was a priest holding mass, and they beheaded him right there at the altar. It doesn't get darker than this. There is a spirit in the world, and it is a dark, demonic, hateful, murderous spirit, an anti-God spirit, a self-love spirit. And so I'm glad that Paul wrote, we didn't receive that. That's why when I talk about it, you all shook your head and made noises and said, no, gee, because that really is terrible. But the reason that you know that that's wrong is because you have the spirit of God inside you who is driving you toward righteousness and holiness, things that are good and things that are long-suffering and patient and kind and gentle and joyous. You have that yearning. You don't have the spirit of the world. And so Paul would write, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things, Paul writing about himself now, which things we also speak. And we speak them not in words taught by human wisdom. There is a... uh, tendency these days, there is a a group out there that believes that the best way to confront the unbelievers of the world is to offer them some kind of sufficient proof of the existence of God or of the death of Christ or of the necessity of salvation. They they have seeded the ground, C-E-D-E-D. They have given up the ground that gives them the the right standing with God. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. They have allowed the world to put God on trial as if they're the right ones. The world is the right ones. And the world will now decide whether God exists or not. And so there are people trying to supply sufficient evidence to appeal to the wisdom of the world. And that doesn't work because as soon as you allow the world to believe they have the upper hand and that they'll decide whether or not God exists or whether Christianity is right or whether the church is proper as soon as you agree and say okay let me appeal to you let me convince you let me show you well then you've agreed with them that they have the right standing the proper standing is God exists God has chosen God is sovereign, and if you don't agree with that, the problem's you. The problem is not the Christian worldview. The problem is the worldview of the world. You understand it? You get the difference? And so Paul could write, we speak these things that are not words that are taught by human wisdom. Human wisdom cannot understand these things. And so we're not to appeal to human wisdom. Here, I'll put it another way. Everybody in this room would have to agree that at some point you encountered the gospel. At some point, someone told you the truth of Christ or you read it out of the Bible. At some point, you came across the gospel. And this is why Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. You were all saved. You were all converted. You were all enlightened by coming in contact with the gospel. So why, when trying to convert anybody, would you appeal to the world's wisdom? The world's wisdom cannot convince the world. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to do the work of saving sheep. It will also expose the goats. 
And so why would you appeal to anything except the gospel? Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the reasons that Paul said, I did not come to you in worldly wisdom and fancy words. I showed you the power of God. And that's a big difference. The world doesn't know the strength, the power, the insight, the knowledge, the wisdom of God. So we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those words that are taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the entire enterprise from start to finish is God's enterprise. Sometimes you're going to speak the words of God, and if you're talking to somebody who's a sheep, they're going to wake up and the lights are going to go on and everybody's going to be home and they're going to get it and they're going to agree and they're going to, they're going to be enlightened by it. But you say those exact same words to a goat. Say those same words to someone who has not been elected, chosen by God, and they won't get it because they are worldly. And so that's why we use spiritual thoughts and spiritual words because we're dealing with talking to spiritual people who will understand spiritual things. Unless the only spirit they have is the spirit of this world, in which case they'll think you're nuts. Verse 14, but a natural man, a worldly man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Is that clear enough? The worldly man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Does not. I would say cannot. Doesn't have the ability. Since they don't have the Spirit of God, if you talk to them about spiritual things, they're not going to get it. They don't have the capacity to get it. Look, here's the deal. It's like another language. If I came in here one day and suddenly, for absolutely no reason at all, decided to preach the entire sermon in Swahili, I just picked a language, a language none of you speak. Well, then I could be saying truth. I could be saying great things. I could be saying grand and glorious things, and none of you would understand because you don't speak that language. I, by the way, do not speak Swahili, and the likelihood of me coming in here and speaking a sermon in Swahili, very, very slim. If I spoke to you this language that none of you speak, you're not going to understand it. And that's what it's like when you tell worldly people spiritual things. You're talking to them in a language they can't understand. And so no matter how loudly you say it to them, no matter how repetitively you say it to them. I, I don't know if any of you have ever traveled to another country, but I was up in French Canada. Oh, I, I see your hand back there, Lawrence. I know you've been to Japan, which would be a perfect example. But I was up in French Canada, and I asked directions of a couple of guys who only spoke French. I said, you know, where's the train station? All I wanted was up there and turn left, you know, just tell me. And so I'm walking around making sounds. I'm choo-choo, you know, anything, trying to get them to understand what I'm driving at. They didn't get it. They answered me in their French dialect and language, which I did not understand. What if they had said it to me again slower and louder? I'm still not going to understand it. It's just slower, louder French. I don't speak French. I do not understand what you're saying. And yet we have that tendency to talk to people, worldly people, about spiritual things, and they don't speak that language. And so then preachers are particularly guilty of this. We think that if we just say it louder and slower, then people are going to get it. If we just insist, especially if you come from an Arminian mindset, that you have to talk people into getting saved, well, then you're more likely to just do whatever you got to do to get them saved, and you'll yell at people and cajole people and sweat and stomp and fume and just tell people, this is the truth, you got to hear it. They don't hear it because they can't hear it. 
If they could have heard it, if they could have understood it, all it would have taken from you was a whisper. All it would have taken from you was to state the case plainly and openly. But more emotion, more volume, more words, that's not going to change anything any more than it changed it with these two French guys. You understand what I'm driving at? Do you understand what I'm driving at? Yes. Oh, there you are. Oh, I knew you were here. I just wasn't sure. We miss you. Yes, and I blame you. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They can't understand it. They don't have any ability to understand these things. And because they think it's foolishness, and because they're full of their own worldly wisdom, they will decide that you're the one with the problem. You know, I'm from the world, and I'm very smart, and I understand everything, and I'm very cynical, and I drop a lot of comments on Facebook. And I'm on YouTube all the time, letting people know my opinion of things, because I've got it all figured out. I've been on this planet a good 29 years. I know everything. And I'm now going to type in all caps so that everybody knows that I'm yelling at them, and I'm in charge of this thing. They're so sure that they're right. They're so sure that they're intelligent. And then they find somebody like me on YouTube talking about the things of God, and they can't wait to tell me how wrong I am and how foolish I am and how much I've offended them and how dare you and all that. I just take it in stride. I just think that's more evidence that I'm doing it right because the world doesn't get it. You know, Jesus once said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. You ever thought about that? That means that if you're a people pleaser and everybody likes you, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> no, unless you're ready to stand up for the gospel and what the Bible actually says, and then the world is going to hate you, that's actually evidence that you're doing it right. It sounds counterintuitive, but when people make those kind of comments, I just think, well, that's what God said, and you obviously don't understand God. You don't have the spirit of God. You don't have the capability. You sure like yourself. You sure are full of your own vigor and self-assessment and pride and ego, but you don't know the things of God. Why? Because Paul said right here, they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. Now look at verse 15. This is a real interesting verse. But he who is spiritual, that would be all the people who have the spirit of God in them. But he who is spiritual, number one, appraises or judges all things. Because we have the mind of God, because we have the spirit of God, we can assess the value of everything in this world. We can figure out whether something's God-fearing, God-advancing, or whether something is, in fact, sinful, whether something is depraved, whether something is worldly, whether something is good for us or not good for us. We have the ability by the Spirit of God to judge, appraise everything. Look at the last half of the sentence. And yet he himself, the spiritual man, is judged or appraised by no man. Now, Paul's going to pick that up again. Chapter 4, he's really going to go after that. But if you have the Spirit of God inside you, then the only entity that is your judge is God himself. Because some people naturally pull back when they get enough criticism. Uh, again, I'll use myself as an example. But when you get on YouTube or you get on the Internet or you say the things that I say, there is always pushback, always. There's always criticism. There's always people who hate it, always. And so my natural human tendency, because I'm a nice guy, I, I like people, 
I think I'm like a bull. Why, why don't they just shut up? <laughs> I want them to like me. Okay, so my natural tendency is to quit standing for the gospel so that they'll like me. But I know that the only judgment that matters, the only appraisal that matters is what does God think of me? He's my only judge. I just so frequently get this anti-God, anti-Christian kind of email or response or comments. And when that happens, I want to write back and defend myself. That's just my natural tendency. I want to defend myself and say, no, you're wrong, and here's why. But that would require a certain amount of compromise on my part. I'd have to say, well, you misunderstood it. I didn't mean it quite that way. Let me make it more acceptable to you. Let me make Christ a little more human-friendly for your sake. And so I'd have to dumb down the gospel in order to do that. So I've learned, just through repetition, not to take that stuff to heart, not to listen to those criticisms, not to care what they've got to say about me personally because I'm not trying to please them I'm trying to please Jeff. No, I'm sorry. Um, I just was checking to see if you were still listening. I'm not trying to please them. I'm trying to please my God. And if he's pleased with you, it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If God is pleased with you, if God has said you're okay, then you're okay. If he has decided to have you in his presence for all of eternity in a place of unbounding joy and glory, and he has decided to keep you there forever, then what does it matter that some guy in Milwaukee doesn't agree? So Paul, who took a tremendous amount of beatings, stoned outside of Lystra and left for dead, day and night in the deep and fastings often, imprisonments often, five times beaten with lashes, he received criticism far greater than any of us have ever reached. And yet he would say, I won't let anybody judge me. I judge everything. I appraise everything because I have the mind of God, but I don't let any man judge me because the only person I'm trying to please is God. You get the argument? It's a great argument. It's a brilliant argument. He who is spiritual, verse 15, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. Now he's going to reach back into Isaiah 40, and he's going to quote from it just to prove again that this is in the scripture. He's trying to prove yet again that He's not saying anything that is not already written in the scripture. This theology that he is preaching is deeply based in the scripture. And so again, he quotes from the scripture, as he so often does. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That that person would instruct God. And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ. So because by the Spirit of God, we have the mind of God, we have the Spirit of Christ, therefore we know that we're not going to be understood, we're not going to be accepted, we're not going to be loved by the world, but we know that God has accepted us and God has forever loved us, Jeremiah 31.3, that God has loved us with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness he has drawn us to himself. And if we can keep that mindset, if we can understand that and let it be the primary motivation in our life, then we don't have to care what the world thinks because we already know the world doesn't get it. Right? Right? Right. Now, that takes us to the beginning of chapter 3. You almost thought I was done, didn't you? You saw the end of chapter 2, and you thought, we're going to eat. We're all set. But we're going to go a couple verses into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, is a very controversial verse within the church world. In fact, it has led to all kinds of disagreements within the church. Who here has a King James Version? Good. 
Do me a favor, Betty, and read chapter 3, verse 1 to us. And I, brethren, you know, those people back there can't hear you. Stand up. <laughs> and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto, the, unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, the reason I had her read from the King James is because the King James uses the particular word carnal. Now, Paul is writing to a church, and he said, are you not carnal? Which led to a movement within the church that was known as carnal Christianity. And what carnal Christianity believed was that you could live like the world and not really adjust your behavior and still be in the flesh, in carnality, and still be saved. Now, this was a natural outgrowth of Arminian theology, especially the Arminian theology that said, it's up to you. You have to decide. You make a choice. And you're going to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You've heard that phrase, right? Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Well, if it's up to you, then you can decide to make him Savior so that you're saved. You've now kind of hoodwinked him. You've done an end run around him. And you've said, okay, because it's up to me, I make you Savior I'm saved, but I'm not going to make you Lord yet. So I can still live the way I've always lived. But I'm saved because I made a decision when I was a 13-year-old little girl. I decided that I was going to be saved. And now that I'm a 65-year-old woman, I don't have to worry about that. I've got the salvation thing all wrapped up because back when I was 13, I made him Savior. It's the way people think. And it's because of this verse, are you not carnal? And so the concept of carnal Christianity arose in the church. Now, in response to people who would make Jesus Savior but not make him Lord, there was a backlash to that theologically that said, no, Jesus must of necessity be the Lord of your life for you to be saved, and as a consequence, you're going to do works that show that Jesus is Lord of your life, and so your works become evidence of your salvation. That was known as lordship salvation. It was in response to all those people who said, I'm making Jesus Savior, but not Lord. The argument was, he does have to be Lord. That became lordship salvation. So that only if he is Lord, as evidenced by your activities, only then can you actually say you're saved. That's what John MacArthur got wrapped up in, and he wrote a book about it. And so in response to lordship salvation, the free grace people came along and said, no, lordship salvation is a heresy because it's saying that you are saved by your works. And being saved by your works is a heresy, which is not what Lordship Salvation teaches, but this is the way they made their argument. Lordship Salvation says that your good works are evidence of your salvation, of the fact that you've made Jesus Lord of your life. And so the free grace folks said, no, Lordship Salvation is wrong because you're saved utterly and completely by God's grace without any works at all. And therefore, at any point that you introduce works into the equation, you are teaching a heretical, anti-biblical doctrine. So do you see what has happened as a result of what Paul wrote here? These are different camps, different groups that rose up in response to other camps and other groups. And the fact is that the carnal Christians obviously got it wrong because the Bible does have a lot to say about righteous, holy living. And so righteous, holy living is part of the Christian experience. Lordship salvation got it wrong in as much as they said that your salvation is evidenced and proved by your good works. And if you don't have the good works, then obviously you're not saved. 
And so salvation became dependent on works. Okay, that's wrong. The free grace people have it wrong because they've said it's all grace to the utter exclusion of works. And Paul's gospel actually does say that God foreordained good works so that we would walk in them. It is God who determined that we would will and do of his good pleasure. And so a different life, a changed life, a different attitude, and walking out that attitude in your life is part of genuine biblical Christianity. So all three of those camps got it wrong because there's balance in the Bible. And anytime you take an extreme position toward any one facet of it, you end up excluding important parts of it. The Bible is balanced. The gospel is balanced. The gospel says, yes, it's grace, grace, grace. Salvation is by grace, absolutely. But it also says, and because you're saved by God's grace, now be like this. Now do good works. As soon as Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, he's laid out a condition for Christians. Don't be like that. As soon as he says, don't be like the world, don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal. Instead, be like this, the gifts of the Spirit. As soon as he lists that, he's saying, okay, since you're saved, then you're going to act according to the fact that you are saved. And the Bible does say that if God saves you, he will be Lord of your life. That's why we call him Lord. It's why the word kurios exists. Because as soon as we recognize that he has preeminence in our life and that our life is being changed and directed by him, we're admitting to his lordship over us. So the balanced gospel teaches Jesus is Lord. We recognize him as Lord. We are saved by him by his grace. And we do works commensurate with our salvation. That's what the Bible says. So Paul wrote, chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to, instead of carnal, the NASB says, as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. Now, number one, I really like, I really appreciate the fact that Paul didn't say, you're babes in Christ, you're like fleshly men, and therefore you're not saved. Therefore, you're out of the church. He didn't say that. He said they were fleshly. He said they were babes and that they needed to grow up. So the proper attitude toward those people who God has called, the proper attitude is you need to grow up. You need to be instructed. You need to be taught. You need to be shown a better way. You need to be brought along in Christianity in the process of learning about Christ. But the attitude is not, you're not as advanced as me, and therefore you're lost. And there are a lot of those people on the Internet. If you don't dot every I and cross every T the way I do, if you don't agree to all five points exactly the way that I do, if you don't, then you're lost. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, let me teach you, let me instruct you, let me be patient with you, let me bring you along in the things of Christ. If somebody still has a hunger for the things of Christ, if they're still interested and they haven't turned off to the things of Christ, then they're just babes in Christ. They're milk drinkers in Christ. They can't take the strong meat yet. And the proper attitude is to instruct those people patiently and kindly and gently and bring them along in the things of Christ. The answer is not shut them out. See the difference? Yes. So he says, and I, brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men. Now, he's going to tell us in a minute what that means. I couldn't talk to you the way I would talk to grown-up, mature people. I couldn't tell you the deep things of Christ. For instance, the book of First and Second Thessalonians has a lot to say about end times stuff. But that's not where Paul started with the Corinthians. He started right there with the Thessalonians. He said, I even taught this stuff to you when I was with you. He went right after deep eschatology. 
But he didn't do that with the Corinthians. The Corinthians had to get down to, how are you treating each other? Down to the basics. If Christ was good to you, shouldn't you be good to other folks? He had to start there. So he couldn't talk to them as grown, mature, fully orbed Christians, but he had to speak to them as men of flesh, as carnal people. And his evidence is going to be, we're not going to get to it this morning, but his evidence that they're still in the flesh is that they are, as he said in chapter 1, that they are preferring one man over another man. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. He's going to use that as their as the evidence that they are still fleshly men. They're still preferring fleshly things. He's going to argue, but what am I? What what is Apollos? What is Cephas? When you break it down, what are we? We didn't die for you. In fact, all we are is servants of Christ. One of us planted seed and another one watered, but the increase is up to God. And so his argument is, pay attention to the things of God, follow after Christ. We are just the servants who have shown you the way to him. So are you not, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink. Obviously, he's not talking about I gave you literal milk. He's not saying, I showed up with jugs of milk, I went to Food Lion, and they didn't have Food Lion back then, in the Middle East. I went to the market, I got you jugs of milk, and I gave you milk. He's talking spiritually and saying, I gave you what babies drink. Babies drink milk, so I gave you milk, because you're babies. You're not grown up in the word, you're not mature in the word, but look at what he says he did. I did give you milk. I did feed and sustain you. I did take care of you at your level. Again, he didn't say, I cast you out, call you unsaved, reject you utterly. He said, I fed you milk. But the reason that I did that, verse 2 again, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food. When somebody's mature, when they're grown up, then they can eat meat. Then they can eat solid food. But first they need milk, formula, mashed up baby food. All the parents in the room know what I'm talking about. Baby food. you got to give them baby food because they're babies. But he says, when you grow up, I can give you strong meat, good food. For you were not yet able to receive the solid food, the meat. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? I said we wouldn't get to it, but verse 4 says, For when one says, I'm of Paul. And another says, I'm of Apollos. Well, then they're breaking into factions. They're not united. They're not agreeing in Christ. And so he says, are you not mere men? You're acting like babies in preferring the one over the other. What then is Apollos? Verse 5, what then is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one of you. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth is everything. That's where we'll pick up next week. Do you get what Paul's dealing with? Paul's dealing with people who are still in their flesh. You're going to find out as we go through this book that they are abusing the spiritual gifts. They're so wrapped up in self-promotion and they're so wrapped up in what's mine is mine and what's yours isn't mine and maybe what's yours is mine. Maybe I'll take what used to be yours. And They're so wrapped up in their own flesh and their own ego, they need to grow up in Christ. And that's the purpose of these books is for Paul to instruct them how to be grown-ups. And that's the point. Got it? Got it. Along the way, 
if there's any carnal, fleshly people here at GCA, you're going to find out how to be a grown-up. So this is good. Come to GCA and grow up. Any questions? I'm sorry that you said that because it triggered something else in my brain. But but <laughs> I'll just make sure you get your money's worth. Um, that's an old joke between me and Gladys. Yes. You know what the difference is between Christianity and every other religion in the world? Genuine biblical Christianity gives all the glory to God. And every man-made religion centers on the man. Either what he has to do, or his reincarnation, or his 72 virgins, or his whatever it is. It all centers on you do stuff. It's all about you. It's all centered in you. Only Christianity says you don't count. You, you are not the, the center of your religion. The center of the religion of Christianity is Christ. It is Christocentric is the great big theological word. And you can tell the difference between faulty Christianity and real Christianity by seeing who it's advancing. If it's advancing humans, it's not the real thing. If it's advancing the cause of Christ, then it's biblical Christianity. That's your fault. Okay, anything else? Any other questions? Yeah, did you have your hand up? Or were you, you were just waving and playing with your hair? You were just showing off because you have hair. Um, anything else? Any other questions? Very good. I guess we're done here. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.